0: did a good job, huh? We're going to be in Esther this morning, as y'all have heard. So before we get into our text, let's start with our prayer, please. Our Father, our God, and our Creator, we want every word we speak, everything that we sing, every thought of our heart to honor you. You are worthy of all our praise. And we know, Father, that you are beyond our imaginations. And that we can come before you. We know that you hear us, that you know us. We ask for your help, Father, as we live this life. Help us, Father, to to live trusting you in all of our days. Not just those that are good, filled with blessing, but those days that bring struggle and sorrow. Help us, Father, not to try to hide behind a facade, believing that we must hide when we struggle and hurt. But we ask that you'll help us to acknowledge those days, to look to you, to trust you, and to lean on each other each and every day. I'm grateful for how you've blessed us with life, that you've brought us to you through your Son, for the hope that we have, for the joy that we have in Him. For through Jesus we pray. Amen. When you look at advertisements for places to go, Sometimes the brochure does not match what happens when you get there. You go to the beach. You know you can take a perfect picture of just about any beach to make it look like the best beach there ever was. When you show up in person, what does it look like? Have you all ever gone to the coast when the uh, seaweed is piling up along the sand? It doesn't look like the brochure pictures along then. It's not quite as fun. And, and you, you kind of have your expectations of what might be. Uh, Whenever you look, now we've got the beach, we've got, oh, I got backwards, the beach, New York City, Central Park. What do you imagine Central Park would look like? On a pretty day, it's a packed place. I love the uh, pictures of Great Wall of China because all the brochures, it looks like it'd be just, you could walk and walk and just, oh, enjoy it without realizing that if you're there to see, there are other tourists there as well, and it's not just wide open and easy to get there. Life, in a lot of ways, we, we tend to look for those good things and our expectation of what is doesn't always match what might happen. The book of Esther gives us one of those scenarios because when we think about royalty, now these are kings and queens and princesses and princesses that are from all over the world during this picture. But when we think about royalty, what kind of picture do you have when you think about royalty, kings and queens and all that goes on? In fact, when our little ones dress up, we have a princess or a prince or somebody. When, whenever you have the little girls dress up like a princess, what do they put on? It's going to be a fancy little dress, isn't it? It's going to be something that's going to sparkle. And so we think about royalty. We think about splendor and majesty. We think about wealth. We think about all kinds of things that how good it would be to be able to be royalty and how, how the regalness and all that comes with it and all that goes on in that life. Where we think that ought to be something wonderful and good. And you open up the book of Esther, and it's almost like it gives you that kind of picture. there's Xerxes, the king. He brings in all his nobles and all the important people of his, his kingdom. And he begins to show them his wealth. So in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all of his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media. The princes and nobles of the provinces were present. And for 180 days, he shows off everything that he has. To show them how powerful He is. To show, him, show them how successful He is. And, and all that lays out. And then they have a banquet for seven days. They probably had banquets before this one. But the main banquet for seven days. Now can you imagine what the banquet looked like? Kings and queens and all the nobility. Nobility. You know the food just had to be over and beyond anything you could ever imagine. And he, and he tells everybody, he tells the service, you give anybody as much wine as they want. He, he's showing his benevolence, his generosity to his people. And Queen Vashti is doing the same thing. She puts on a banquet as well for those, the women who were there at that time. So you think about how wonderful it is, the picture of what it would be like. Can you imagine being at a banquet like that? Maybe I shouldn't talk about banquets when you're, when our clocks, body clocks are saying it's time for lunch right now. But whenever you think about royalty, we know, oh, wow, it's going to be something wonderful. And so the idea in chapter 2 of Esther, Esther becoming queen, i wow. Can you see how she would be dressed? The crown on her head. How wonderful it would be to be queen. And she goes in to the king, And he loves her more than any other. She won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. And he set that crown on her head and made her queen instead of Ashti. And you look at that, you think, this story of Esther is going to be something wonderful. Because we're talking about being a king, being a queen, and all that goes on. And the palace, and all the opulence and all that goes on, and and we, we know that we see all that and we think this is going to be a story that's going to have a happy ending, because you know whenever you have a story about a, a young woman becoming queen, it always ends as a happy ending, doesn't it? It's always going to be good. But the thing about royalty, you think in, in real life, is that underneath all that splendor, we find a dark, ugly side. Just because that's the world we live in. And it's it's the same thing in the book of Esther. Because Xerxes was not a good man. Historically, he was not a pleasant person to hang around with. He was cruel. And so when you think about that idea of being king, it's good to be king. Well, it's great to be king if you're the king, but if you're ever around him, you could find yourself without a head or or something even worse as you go along in life and, and... knowing that if you crossed him, that things were not going to go well for you. And so when you have, in chapter 1, in all of their feasts, when the king is in high spirits from wine, so he tells everybody they can have as much as they want, which means he's having as much as he wants. And so he commands the seven eunuchs who served him, Mahuman, Bista, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zathar, and Carcass, aren't you glad I didn't give you that one, Drake, Tree, read, uh, to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to, to the people and nobles for she was lovely to look at. When you read that verse, it almost sounds like, hey guys, let me show you who my queen is. But there's something deeper and darker behind that because he was not asking her just to come and say hi to all the guys and say hello. He was asking something that would be compromising. Because the implication isn't that she would just show up in all her royal uh, uh, robes and everything, he was pretty much asking her to show up with just her crown. And so when you look at that idea, and so she says, no. What happens when you tell the king, no? You get an upset king. And so in that no, he says, we got to do something about this. And he gathers up all of his advisors and say, what are we going to do? And they say, you know, if this word gets out that the queen told you no then all the other wives of all the other nobles will start telling their husbands no, and then the world is going to just fall apart because then you're going to have women all over just deciding what they're going to do for themselves, telling their husbands no. We've got to do something about this so that they know they cannot say no to their husbands. And so they decide they're going to remove her as queen so that all the wives of the kingdom will know you've got to do what you're told. All of a sudden, being queen doesn't sound so exciting, does it? And so she's removed as queen. And and that idea of being removed means that there's something more that's got to go on. So when we get Esther come along, what was not, is sometimes when you read Esther, it almost sounds like they're going to hold a beauty pageant. Miss USA, Miss, Miss, uh, uh-oh, I lost my kingdom. Persia, uh, uh. Yeah, the empire. <clears throat> I backed up in my memory too far back and I was kind of up with the wrong name in my head. But when you think about that, you think, oh, it's going to be a beauty pageant. But the, it was not a beauty pageant. Because Esther and all these other young women read what happens to them. It says, let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the Citadel of Susa. Into the harem they weren't showing up at the at the uh, palace to see if the king liked them or not and then they go back home all those young women that showed up at the palace to try out for queen were now part of his harem and that's where they spend the rest of their lives this was not a beauty pageant this was either you were queen or you were just one more concubine added to the harem and that, that's what's brought out. So this was a long process. So when you look at what goes on and all this royalty that we would think would be so wonderful, this was not the chance that Esther would be queen. just This was God involved, not the idea that, oh, it, just, it could be anybody and everybody else goes back home. So when we look at that, we have to know that there's, there's something dark and ugly going on here as well. Because this world they live in is one that's violent. It's, a, it's one that there's all kinds of things that could happen. So we have, have Esther's cousin, Mordecai. He hangs out at the gate. I'm still trying to figure out how these guys make a living sitting around the city gate all day. And, and maybe these are the guys that are old enough that they can sit down in the coffee shop, they talk and drink coffee, and they've already, they've already uh, retired. But the idea is there's so much more than just the they're, they're older men. This is, they're at the gate, and this is a part of how life is. But he's there, and we find Tana and Teresh, Two of the king's officers guarding the, who guard the doorway, they were angry at the king. Easy to do. And they conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. And Mordecai hears it. He reports it. And it's passed along. And everybody knows Mordecai was the one that helped alleviate this danger to the king. So being part of royalty wasn't just something good. it was a da- There were potential dangers as well because other people wanted to be king as well. So in all this, all this danger that goes around, now we have Esther come upon the scene as part of this process. And so we have Mordecai, who sits at the gate, and Haman, one of the officials of Xerxes, who goes through and he likes to be treated well because he is the representative of the king. You're supposed to bow down to the representative of the king. Treat him good. Mordecai doesn't do it. And so Haman is all upset because Mordecai won't do what's right. And so he gets angry. And instead of just deciding, I want to make sure Mordecai is put to death and can't do that anymore and everybody will learn a lesson. He finds out who his people are and he says, we're going to wipe out everybody. You see, the violence, just the whole process is that he has the authority and power to make this happen. To wipe out a whole people and decide, I don't like them, so we're just going to get rid of them. And he takes it to the king and king, the king goes, go ahead and do what you want to do. And so that's part of when our, in our reading of chapter four, they learn about that edict and everybody starts to mourn and all that goes on because they face death. And in this world, all the dangers that could go along. So when Mordecai, well, I I didn't get you this one read. They look for, he looked for a way to destroy Mordecai's people throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Now we, when we get to the point of chapter four in our scripture reading, all of this to lead up to this, because now Mordecai sends a message to Esther, who's now queen And says, you need to go talk to the king about this. And Esther comes back and says, you know the rules. If I go into the palace, into the throne room, without being invited, and the king does not extend the the scepter toward me, I'm put to death. Being queen doesn't sound so exciting anymore, does it? And so, she sends that message to Mordecai. And and he comes along and and gives an answer back. Says, it's not just that idea of the world being dangerous, but he knows, she knows. If she says something, her life could end right there. So, what, what she says says, so she steps up and she's going to do it. says, I'll go in. And even though it's against the law, if I perish, I perish. She's going to speak up and do what needs to be, no matter what, because this is what needs to be done. And so when he, she walks into the courtyard and she stands there, she hasn't said anything yet. The king sees her and he's pleased to see her and extends the scepter. Now, listen to her wisdom, because she just doesn't walk up and say, Haman's trying to kill all my people. He goes, what do you want? I'll give you anything you want, up to half the kingdom. She says, I want you and Haman to come into my house for dinner. You're thinking, king and queen, they don't live in the same place? Ah, see, that says a whole lot about that royalty, doesn't it? Of course, some of you all might be enticed by that. Hmm, my own house. Who keeps the kids? So, well... But we have all that laid out, and we find Esther just saying, I want you all to come to dinner. They go to her place, to her palace, to eat. And the king says again, whatever you want, ask me. I'll give it to you. She said, what I want is, I want you all to come back tomorrow and have dinner with me again. Then I'll tell you what I'm asking for. And so the thing about that is, is that there are things that happen in between. She has stepped out, but she hasn't said anything yet. Because she knows in her wisdom that she can't just come out and say this is what ought to be. She needs to be able to say it in a way that it's heard. So Haman gets all upset because Mordecai is still not. And he thinks he's in good graces. The queen invited me and nobody else with the king to go eat at her place. And all of the, his friends and his family go, you're in good spot. And, and, but I'm, I don't like Mordecai doing all this. And they say, I tell you what, take a pole, put it up in your backyard. Can you imagine planning to kill somebody in your backyard? Well, some of y'all might have, but you know, he sets up this pole 50 cubits high to be able to say, you know, Hey, we'll put Mordecai on this and you can go to the banquet after you've killed Mordecai and you can enjoy yourself. Now, isn't that ironic? You can kill this man and then go and have a meal and enjoy yourself. But the thing is, is that, uh, the King can't sleep that night. What do y'all do when you, when you can't sleep? When you think some folks get up. Some lay and let the lay in bed and let the uh, mouse run the, the wheel you know, we have all kinds of ways we handle not sleeping when the king can't sleep he says bring me the royal record and so they begin to read and he hears about Mordecai saving him and he says did any do we do anything to reward him and they go nope and so Haman happens to walk in at that moment to get permission to kill Mordecai. And the king says, what would you do to reward somebody that you want to reward? And, and Haman thinking it was him, because who else would the king reward? And Haman says, you know what you do is you get a, get a royal robe that the king has worn, put it on him. Put him on a, on a king's horse and have one of your officials lead him through town and say, this is what the king does to those he wants to, to show are good people. And so he finds out, and the king says, Go do that for Mordecai. And all of a sudden, things have, have flipped for Haman. And he goes and he's ashamed because he's taken Mordecai through town telling about how wonderful he is. And he goes back home and he starts telling his wife and his friends and say, and they're like, this is not good. Things are going, aren't going to go well. The king's guard comes and takes him because it's time for the next dinner. And they sit down at the dinner and the king finally says, what do you want? And he says, you know, all we, what I want is just for me and my people to live. You can make us slaves, but we just want to live. And the the king's like, who's trying to kill you? And he says, Haman. And the king becomes so angry, he has to step out for a moment. Haman begins to beg for his life. And when the king comes back in, he sees Haman all on top of Esther trying to beg for his life. They grab him up, put a hood on his head. And somebody says, oh, by the way, Haman just had a pole built in his backyard. And the king says, put him on it. And things flip around. And, you, and when you start to see all this come together, and now in all of this, all of this, you watch this process because now the Jews are given, able to give the command that they can defend themselves. They're able to defend themselves from their enemies. And everything comes out well because Mordecai becomes the second of command in, under the king. Esther is a queen that's beloved. The, people of the, the Jewish people are saved. And we have our happy ending with all the mess and the royalty. But when we get to the end of it, what are we going to learn from it? How many of us have been a king or a queen or hope to? I think for this, this story, this book, the verse that ought to catch our attention is chapter 4, verse 14. Who knows that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. And we may not become royalty, but all of us in life are at a place where we can make a difference by speaking up. When you think about what is it that God, how does God want us to speak up in life? And and there's three. We speak up. God tells us to speak up when we have a voice and there are those who don't have one to defend themselves. He wants us to speak up. Proverbs 31 is where he says that because they're talking about King Lemuel. It says, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. The rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly, defend the rights of the poor and the needy that God says there are those in this world that need somebody to stand up for them and say something about it, to stand up for for what's right, and He wants us to be able to do that. when we have a voice, God wants us to speak up for those who don't and that and now that's easy to say just right here, but think about. What it means for us to speak up for those who are being mistreated, for those who are oppressed, for those who are are cast down. When you think about speaking up for those folks, it means we put ourselves in that danger of having to say, stand up for those who have those who are oppressing them. And we get put ourselves in their sights. But God tells us when you have a voice, use your voice to do what's right, to speak up for justice. To speak up for those who are struggling and are being mistreated. That we need people in this world to speak up. And God wants us to to be in that spot. Because when when we are the ones able, from where we are, to say something, God wants us to say something. Have you all ever heard uh, this phrase used, Ephesians 4.15? Have you all ever had somebody quote this one to you? It says, speaking the truth in love will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is at the head, that is Christ. And somebody who wants to tell us the truth and say, well, I'm just telling you this because I love you. But after they said what they're going to say, you don't feel like they really love you? Have you all ever had that happen? They, it sounded like they just wanted to tell you something and, and tell you, and they just are covering it over with, well, I'm doing this because I love you. But the thing about that is, is when somebody says something to you like that, and you don't feel like they really care about you, how well do you hear what they've said? I think that's part of when we speak up. We speak up when we have somebody else's ear. It doesn't do any good to say, no matter how true something is, whenever we're trying to, to push it on them without them being able to hear what we have to say. First Peter chapter 3 says, In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks. Always be prepared to give an answer. He says, speak up, but to who? To everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Do you hear what he says, though? The opportunity we have to tell somebody something they need to hear is best given when they are ready to hear it. When somebody asks, why do you have that hope that you have? They can hear better because they're now they're wondering what you have going on. When, nobody, when somebody knows that you really do love them, they're more inclined to listen to what you have to say rather than you having to explain to them that you love them and then now you're going to tell them what you want to tell them. If they don't know, if they've never known, if you never acted like you love them to begin with, they're not really going to hear what you have to say. So we have to have their ear to be able to speak up and say what ought to be say, said. God also tells us that we need to speak up when we've caused tears in somebody else's life. When we've hurt someone else, He expects us to speak up. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Along the way, so that you don't have to Get all caught up in that. Do you hear what he says, though? But if, you have some, if you've done something that somebody else now holds against you, who's supposed to speak up? Well, he expects us to speak up. Actually, I can go to Matthew 18. It says it's, it's both parties. But when we've hurt somebody else, God expects us to speak up and say, what I've done is wrong. To make it right. To be able to accept responsibility for what I've done. Whatever goes on. And, and this applies to God as well. When we take First John chapter 1. When he talks about confession. Isn't that just an acknowledgement on our part? To speak up and say what I've done is wrong. So if we claim to be without sin. We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins. He is faithful and just. And will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned. We make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. There are times to speak up. And he says, when we've done what's wrong, that's one of those times that we're supposed to speak up and say, acknowledge the truth. This is what I've done. It's wrong. And I want to make it right. Of course, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 is usually the, the section where we talk about the time for everything. You know, time to be born, time to die, time to plant, time to uproot. We get down to the end of it, it says there's a time to be silent, there's a time to speak. There are times in life where we don't need to say anything. Have you all ever tried to give parenting advice to some random person going by you in the grocery store that you've never met before? I'd suggest that you not good time to be silent unless they feel like you really care about them but it's hard to do that in a moment in a grocery store there are times to not say anything but there are times where God has put us into this world just where we are the people around us the relationships we have where God wants us to say something to speak up to speak up to be able to, to make things right. To speak up on behalf of those who need somebody to stand with them. To speak up to admit where we've, where we've gotten away from what God wants us to do. How we've wronged somebody else or how we've sinned against God. He wants us to speak up. The time to speak up. Today is a great time to say what needs to be said. If we've wronged somebody else to make it right. If we need to make things right with God. To admit that's what we need to do. And do what needs to be done. Whether to put on Christ in baptism or to repent and turn back to Him. Today is the time. If you need to respond, would you come now as we stand and sing.